Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Deidre McCloskey. She's the Distinguished Professor of Economics and History and Professor of English and Communications at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's the author of many books, including the acclaimed Bourgeois Trilogy. Her latest book is Why Liberalism Works, How True Liberal Values Produce a Freer, More Equal, and Prosperous World for All. Welcome back to Free Thoughts, Deidre. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm emerita, actually. Oh, you're emerita. Yes, okay. I've been. I, I retired a few years ago in order to work. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I get that. I get that. So there's a lot of hand-wringing these days about liberalism and illiberalism. And, yeah. and, and I guess you joined the fray to some extent. But I have. Is, it, is there something unique about this time or is this just sort of a sinusoidal thing where liberalism has to be defended to new generations? I think you're, that's a very good analogy and I think it's right. I think if individual one is not re-elected president of the United States next time, then I think there'll be an international drawback of right-wing um, illiberalism. Unfortunately, I think that might inspirit left-wing <laughs> liberalism. So the, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. I, I think there's a, a case to be made and, and um, the, in detail that there's there's nothing really about the economic situation that requires us to be a liberal. What happens, I think, after each big recession, the worst one was the 1930s, there's an, during and after, there's an outbreak of let's solve things by, I don't know, doing something, God knows what, and people rush off in various various directions. Make sure this never happens again. Kind Make of sure this never happens again. We mustn't do, okay, let's let's overregulate the banking industry more and let's do this and let's do that. Well, why is it that when that happens, we get we get a recession and then we get these calls for more intervention and in this case, it seems like calls for like a strong man yes. in particular to come the in. man on the white horse. Why don't we instead get calls, I mean, this is kind of that Naomi Klein's shock doctrine thing of like her that, you know, after big disasters, the free marketers use this to like ram through their policies, but that never actually happens. It's no, always, it it's always it's the interventions. So why don't we get that? Why well, don't we get because, like. Because the only we standing around is the state. I mean, if, if we are going to fix things and as you said, make this not happen again or uh, solve the terrible problem of stagnant wages, which is false. They're Wages are not stagnant, but anyway, solve this or solve that or the, or the appalling inequality, which actually hasn't happened in most countries. Uh, we have to be the state. So, and, and now that's about a hundred years old, this conviction that we should do things this way. Do you, do you mean in the sense of well, – because there's different we's we could be talking about. There's – I'm not a big fan of the the kind of – well, at least over-anthropomorphizing the state, right? Like yeah. saying we decided this yeah. thing. Well, it, it goes back, of course, to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, charming man, uh, who quarreled with everyone he knew, including Adam Smith. Um, he uh, – one day he was walking. He He says this. And he saw, he saw immediately how to bring together the power of the state to do things and yet the freedom of the individual. 
And his solution, with heavy quotation marks around it, was that the general will, the volonté générale, would be your will. Well, that's convenient. End of, <laughs> end of problem. If your will is what the Communist Party wants or what the uh, what the Nazi Party wants or what the Democratic or Republican Party wants, what's the problem? Do your will. And that has echoed down through the, the left and the right. Um, Carl Schmitt is popular among uh, the American left now. I'm quite puzzled by this. Carl Schmitt was a fascist theorist. But he really liked the state. I mean, oh, he boy, he liked the state. Yeah. You are the state. Oh, you are the state. But, but this metaphor, this general will metaphor, I mean, seems frustratingly sticky in the sense like I'm thinking of, you know, so after, after Trump won, that we had these ongoing arguments about like the Electoral College. Yeah, yeah. And the, but the form that the arguments took was the Electoral College was either preserving the will of the people by yeah, not yeah, allowing it yeah. to be, you know, just yeah, shunted off right. to these blue enclaves, or it was corrupting the will of the people yeah. as opposed to just kind of acknowledging that the people disagree. Yeah. But that's we right. want we want to like we still just quest for this system where that general will can be realized without corruption. There's a, there's a wonderful remark among many by the great American journalist H.L. Mencken of a century ago where he said, democracy is the theory or majority voting is the theory that ordinary people know what they want and deserve to get it good and hard. <laughs> and it's a wise remark. Um, this this idea that the majority should always rule is, of course, intensely illiberal because it's mob rule. It's the rule of the majority against minorities, black people, queers, uh, women, except they're a majority. You know, <laughs> it's it, – we have a constitution which is supposed to, at least in its amendments, is supposed to supposed to protect minorities. So what is the relationship between democracy and liberalism in the way that liberals should view it? Well, look, liberalism is the theory that there should be no masters, no husbands over wives, no masters over slaves, no uh, politicians over citizens. It's egalitarian. In Adam Smith, he speaks of the the liberal plan of equality, liberty, and justice, by which he meant social equality, economic liberty, and legal um, justice. And the key feature of democracy is that everyone can vote. That's and and look. Majorities don't always make good decisions. But you know, minorities don't always make good decisions. Experts don't always make good decisions. Experts brought us into Vietnam. Uh, a minority brought us into the, the, the second Iraq war. So what's key about democracy, and I think this is the, this is the central connection. This is the real joined at the hip connection between liberalism on the one end and democracy on the other is that equal right to vote 
is a message of dignity, a message of equality. What was most insulting to black people in the South, that they weren't allowed to vote or they had to translate passages from ancient Greek in order to vote or something like that, is the inequality of it, the indignity of not being a voting citizen. I don't think they had any you know, particular detailed opinions about economic policy that were going to be changed very much. Just the, but the indignity of the, the whole thing. The indignity, and this is the great thing about, about about the women's vote. The standard argument against the women's vote is that so far as interest was concerned, the husband would take care of it. After all, he's not going to vote something that's going to hurt his wife terribly or his family. Well, that's all right, except that she's put in the the position of a child. Even if you accept the first premise, you say, sure, even yeah, if you but accept, you're still treating even her like crap. The first, yeah. You're still treating her as an inferior person. And it's that remarkable idea that people are equal. That's the key to liberalism. It's, it's the it, and modern liberal democracy to put the words together. And it's, it's in the 18th century, it's entirely new. As, a, as, an, as an intellectual uh, construct, it's only the most advanced thinkers, uh, um, Smith and Mary Wollstonecraft and Tom Paine and people like that, they're talking this way. It would have been crazy in the 17th century. People would have laughed in an, at the idea in a hierarchical agricultural society at equality. What? John Adams said, who was no Democrat in a thoroughgoing way, John Adams said, if we give women the vote, soon, you know, lads from 12 to 21 will be thinking themselves ill-used if they don't have the vote. Well, he, he was saying there's a Pandora's box that opens when you say all humans, not just men, are created equal. And that's true. That's been our history. That's the American idea, that we are equal. So there's a tension there then. So recognizing the the equal dignity of everyone um, gets hooked on to everyone voting, so everyone having this sense of participation in the yes. direction of things. Um, but then as we frequently see, and as you said, like that doesn't mean that everyone will then use that power they've been given to – facilitate a world that respects the dignity and equality of others. That's They'll vote the all problem. sorts of and so that's the problem. Keeping like maintaining that that balance is it um there's so there's a cultural side to that. Like people just like couldn't bring themselves to vote in ways that would deny. Um but there's also like an institutional like we have so our constitution says, okay, you know, no matter what you want, there's yeah, nothing's but, off the table. But but you know the but but the words mattered. The Declaration of Independence, the Gettysburg Address, um, echoed down through our our history, and, and the shameful fact that in part of the United States, blacks were denied the vote while we were fighting fascism overseas and complaining after the war about communism. That was one of the big answers that the Russians gave. Well. How about your blacks? 
Um, and so the words mattered, but but you're right. There was uh, there's the problem with liberalism <laughs> is that it's not authoritarian. Yeah, by definition. That's right. If you're authoritarian, then you can do as Orwell or O'Brien put it in 1984. uh, You can have a boot stamping on a human face forever. And you can keep ideas, keep your idea there. War is peace. um, uh, Freedom is slavery, etc. Whereas we liberals believe in sweet talk, persuasion. We, we believe in, in free speech and allowing people to argue. And that's how we're going to change things, not with, with uh, coercion. Do you think it's possible to uh, create a taxonomy of some extent of the different forms of a liberalism or do they all end up kind of meet, meeting together in authoritarianism or collective? Because well, some it, of them could be uh, – you know, so I'm you know people who are not liberals because they want to get things done, and they don't think liberal society gets things done, yeah, yeah. and it's very important to collectivize in that way and create yeah, yeah. national character, unity, all that kind of stuff. And yeah. there could just be people who aren't liberal because they're evil. They're you know, yeah. You know, well, they, look, they, when you have a war for survival, then you can't be liberal. You've got to draft people. You've got to force people to do stuff they don't want to do. In order to keep, I don't know, the Canadians from invading us. I'm, I'm, I can hardly sleep at night worrying about <laughs> the, the Canadians, and if not the Mexicans. But um, so you're, so so there, there, there's a unity of purpose in, in in a war like that. But then, by kind of metaphor or analogy, people want that to keep happening because they love the feeling of unity and. Then the volonté général, the general will, is is so. It's like being at a at a at a football game or something. You're all cheering for the Bears. Bear down, Bears. We sing in Chicago, and it's it's this wonderful feeling we get as humans when we're singing together at the at the Nuremberg rallies, or uh, the. When you're rowing in a boat in a skull uh, with with uh, eight eight people rowing or singing in a chorus, all this wonderful unity that mammals love so much, and that's the danger. It it's very hard to keep that wartime mentality out of it. Now, then there are people who are just conservatives, not so much evil. I mean, there's plenty of that too, but. Are just conservatives, and they're they're liberal because they they delight in hierarchy. Uh, Thomas Carlyle was a good example of this, and they they like it that there are servants and masters, and damn, that's how it should be. And um, <clears throat> I know moderate conservatives, I know moderate socialists, and uh, we argue all the time. This so it seems there's another there's another kind of it that seems to be driving a lot of like what's happening in the U.S. today, which is not it's called conservatism. It's not conservatism in terms of wanting to maintain or live in a world of hierarchies, right. but but wanting to live in a world that is like culturally yeah. slowed down. Yeah, that's um, right. And 
And that one, so that's the one that like a lot of Trump voters have that view. Absolutely. Like the world's changing too quick. I don't like these people who talk different than me coming in. Yeah. You know, um, but that's one that seems, you know, we can we as libertarians or liberals can make all sorts like you mentioned like wages aren't actually stagnant right no, and we no. can make that argument no one um, believes it. or we can talk about the you know the, the hockey stick growth that right. capitalism but if if the underlying concern that people have is i don't want the world to change yeah. around me yeah. we can't really like offer them no, much right so how do you how do you address that particular well, kind of conservatism well one one way is the way that i know which is to argue with them in a kind of academic way and point out that if you want the poor to stay poor and the young to stay poor and you don't want anyone to make any more money than they make now then then no progress we don't get you have cell phones that weigh five pounds and <laughs> so on. If that's what you want, we can arrange that. We can forbid change and you can go to work and do the same thing you did yes tomorrow as you did yesterday. And we can ask them, do you really want to live in that world? And unfortunately, a lot of people say, damn right I do. Well, some of them go and live with the Amish or something like that. So that's they, they right. They can go to the, the, those places. That's right. Actually, the, the Amish, I, 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 I knew some Amish. And they're in Iowa, and they're that's right. They're they've made that decision, but I'm very willing to let people do that if they want. I just don't want them to impose it on me. And that's the trouble. Look, every year in the United States, in any economy that's progressing, where you know cell phones are getting better, say fourteen percent of the jobs disappear. Forever, in 2000, 130,000 people were employed in, wait for it, video stores. <laughs> <laughs> now, wow. zero. And those people are not outstanding on the street. If they were, we'd have 50 to 100% unemployment right now. They go find other jobs. And we get better access to movies. So, I, I, in a way, what we need to do is to get people to adopt a liberal ideology, which means saying to them, look, what kind of world do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a world where your children do better than you are? I was just talking to an Ethiopian cab driver in Washington. And he has three boys and a girl. They've all gone to college. He works as a cab driver morning, noon, and night. He's the American dream. It's progress that makes that possible. His children don't have to have the same job he had. And that's that. You, you, people have to agree to that, so to speak. Most Americans do, actually. But... You can get politicians like Donald Trump, uh, individual one, complaining, saying, we're going to bring back West Virginia coal. No, they're not. No one's going to bring back West Virginia coal considering inexpensive uh, natural gas. Stop it. Stop pandering to the 14 percent. They're going to be worse off, and certainly everyone else is, if you prevent Jobs from changing. Capital has to move. 
jobs have to change. How much do you think this stuff results, some of this illiberalism results from taking all that for granted? I mean, well, as, as, like the, your Ethiopian exactly cab right. driver does not take it for granted. My my grandpa definitely didn't take it for granted. I grew up wealthy enough that I'm sure I did take it a little bit more for granted. I did too. I was the I was the child of a Harvard professor, so boy did I take it for granted. So that's why I became a socialist when I was 16, because <laughs> I saw that, and that's why lots of people become socialists. If if you grow up in a well as as an immigrant. Or you grow up on a farm or in a small business where you as a child are working in the business. I don't mean slaving away, but you're participating in it. Then you learn that innovation is necessary and desirable. Let's find a, a better way to grow soybeans. But if you grow up as the son or daughter of a corporate person or an academic or a, a state employee, you don't know where meat comes from. You don't know nothing about the market. I, I found when I taught at the University of Iowa for 19 years, Go Hawks, that my students, a quite small number actually, even in Iowa, who grew up in farms, understood economics very quickly. Whereas it was the other kids, they, they didn't get it. I certainly didn't. One of my favorite quotes about the free market is I think it goes I think it's Walter Williams but uh, it's uh, your grocer doesn't know what you're going to buy when you're going to show up or how much you're going to buy but if he doesn't have it you fire him exactly. like you, you 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 we we expect avocados in December it's in, in miraculous Duluth. I mean we just we just get, we get really mad like they if there aren't avocados in are my avocados and these are not soft enough <laughs> yes. what is this <laughs> what is this kind of third world country <laughs> living in without avocados yeah, we could, I guess maybe that could we could get to the millennial the, the tip like typifying they do like their avocados well, well, but, you're, but, but you're very right that it's it's an absence of historical perspective that's the problem here I was just in the very wonderful um, uh, uh, Museum of American Life that the Smithsonian has in the nation's capital. And it's all about innovation and change and so on. And if people were really, you know, the good roads movement, especially in the 1920s. Oh, yeah. Those were mostly bicycles there too. Yeah, it was, it was huge. In, the, in the 1890s, it was bicycles. Then it became automobiles. The, getting out of the mud resulted in this enormous investment in highways and they have very good ex exhibitions there showing why the Model T had such a high chassis. It had a high chassis because otherwise the thing, the bottom of the car would be in the mud because the ruts were, uh, you know, eight inches deep. So I, I wish people could realize how much we've changed and I, I I try to tell them, and this is worldwide. It's not just the United States. Uh, the the percentage of unspeakably poor people in the world is falling like a stone. It's very low now by historical standards. I think uh, there's also a museum in York, England called the Castle Museum. I've been there. Pretty much the best museum I've ever been to. That goes through life from the 1500s. I've been to, You've the, been Castle to the Castle Museum. museum. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I taught it at the University of York for a couple of summer terms. Yeah, that will really show you how you did laundry and how exactly. you just did the smallest thing if you're exactly. like 1650. My mother, yeah. I'm born in 1942, my mother washed my diapers by hand, cloth diapers, in a tub in the basement 
with a washboard, which, by the way, is not a musical instrument. (laughs) (laughs) At the same time, this kind of loss of historical perspective – um, which then leads to just thinking the way things are is kind of is the default, and and then we can just point to the problems of it. And be like, well, these things are terrible, but not realizing how much better things are now. Um, that seems like that's also a good thing. Like it's good that we live in a world where we're so prosperous that we that's can like not have this historical perspective, and we wouldn't want. We wouldn't want people to, and in, even in the sense of like all the time that would be spent. Um, so I remember my my dad when I got my first car and my dad worked in the automotive industry in Detroit um, and was always I think a little bit disappointed that I wasn't that into cars. I got my first car and he was like, well, you can – you know, on the weekends, like you can learn to change your own oil and you can have your friends over and you can all like work on each other's cars. And I was like – I was like, I don't have – I can also pay nineteen ninety five to get the oil changed and go on with my day, and I'm not that interested, right? And it's there's opportunity costs in yes, all this, there is. so I'm missing out on something. But that gave me an opportunity to like explore the ideas that eventually led me to my career. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think of housewives. Think, think. Let's go back to washing. Um, Hans, the great Hans Rosling, Swedish professor of public health, who's written wonderfully on this. He died last year, alas, Rosling, R-O-S-L-I-N-G. Look up his 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 videos on the internet. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll link them in the show he, notes. They're he, great, yeah. He said when, when, um, <laughs> when his mother got a washing machine, he speaks of the washing line, which is about $80 a day, and which Sweden finally got to. He said his grandmother sat in front of the machine and watched it for its whole cycle because she had spent a substantial part of her life doing washing. That's what women did. Monday. I mean, they spent the whole of Monday. long time ago, I saw someone who calculated that the washing day on Monday in, say, 1900, which my grandmother told me about, um, <laughs> took more caloric energy than five quarters of Big Ten football <laughs> back when they didn't have platooning. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone was playing both, both sides both of the ways. ball. Wow. <laughs> That's about that. So, like so that but, 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 but you're right. It, it's been argued, and it's not completely crazy. That Argentina, which in 1900 was among the among the richest countries in the world, decided that that was good enough. They lost a century, almost. and they lost a century. I mean, they, their income yeah. went up since then, but because they got electric lights and automobiles and so on. But Argentina, to this day, is sort of sunk in this populist fantasy, as. Bastia put it, the socialist fantasy that everyone can live on everyone else. Yeah, the expense of everyone else. Yeah. Expense of everyone else. And, and so they kind of said, well, things are pretty good. Uh, this is all right. Let's stick with it. A certain striving for the um, the infinite, as the Germans say, is desirable. Adam Smith uh, um, um, says this, in fact. But isn't this the objection that gets made to that that line of argument um, is that this 
process that keeps getting us more and more growth and more and more innovation is itself destructive and consumes resources and so on so that there is – there comes a point when it just will wipe everything out. We run out of stuff. That's what the, that's what they say and I have written a great deal against that. Uh, people speak of consumerism for example. That's one of their objections. And it turns out the people making these complaints about consumerism themselves have nice apartments in, in, in the West Village in Manhattan. Uh, my friend Bob Frank is this way. And every human society is consumerist. The the Bushmen of the Kalahari consume as much as they can and they consume in elaborate symbolic ways. Ask any anthropologist this. They'll tell you. Eating, dressing, decorating yourself, rituals are all consumption and they're all about making ourselves with goods. And this is still true. So what? It's how humans are. And if we're producing a lot and we're consuming a lot, there's nothing evil about that. And as for resource exhaustion and so on, that's just um, – that just doesn't understand how economies work. Famous example is whale oil, which for decades was one of the main sources of uh, indoor lighting in well-to-do families in the United States. And in 1859, the first wells in Pennsylvania, oil wells, mineral oil wells, were drilled, and it saved the whales. Maybe some, I mean, maybe some whale species went extinct, though it's possible. I'm not sure if that's true, but, but maybe it's at some point our resource extraction of something has definitely caused things yeah, to disappear. It, it, except that it, it, what's a what's a resource? Uh, the ultimate resource, as it has wisely been said, is human intelligence and creativity. That's the Julia. That, that, I like the quote of "You can view people as either brains or bellies. They're, they're just either just eating things, but they also make things." Julian, um, what's his name? Simon. Yeah, Simon was a great economist. And he uh, at Indiana and Maryland, and he he said this, and it's he said, "Look." Well, let's take – you can take an obvious example. Rare earth – rare rare earth? Is that rare, rare earth, mineral oil. They were rare minerals. until yeah. we discovered they could be used for computer batteries. Well, they were worthless. Of course they were worthless. <laughs> They're called rare earths. They might have been absolutely scarce, but that they weren't, they weren't rare because matter. there was no demand. Yeah. Uh, um, bauxite yeah. was just dirt except that it had aluminum ore in it. And then people learned that if you used a lot of electricity, you could make aluminum with it, which was a very rare, speaking of rarity, a rare item which became commonplace through human ingenuity. So it's, it's, the, yeah, there are limits. P 
but the problem is that people think of this in ma- almost almost in mathematical terms. They say, "Well, nothing can go on forever," and they're making a mathematical argument. They're not making a scientific argument. They're not talking about the facts of the world. They're talking about, "Well, you can't get more than a hundred percent or something." They, that's what they have in mind. Now, we had with Trump. We saw we could say Trump individual is a, one individual one as a version of <laughs> a, of a, t- a rise of some types of illiberalism, but as a somewhat of a response to that, we've seen I would say some pretty disturbing illiberalism coming from the left. Definitely, I think most manifesting itself in the form of virulent anti-free speech yeah. behavior, which is the well, thing we always used to be able to trust the left for. Yeah, that's right. And but of course, bear in mind that that's only in. Certain elite universities. True. Yes. Yeah. Brown, in particular, is the is the world capital of. Someone needs to call John Tomasi and see what's going John, on. John. John <laughs> is amazing. John Tomasi mm-hmm. survives somehow at Brown. But uh, I mean, so, uh, but at the same time, I've Aaron. I went to just Boulder for undergrad, and we we definitely got a good taste of some versions of Marxism, postmodernism. Different sure, kind of, kind of, And you can see some applications of that that would be so extreme yeah. that they would amount to being anti-free speech. I mean, that's sort of the kind of the Marcuse point that sometimes gets made. Sure they would. And, and, and but the, as I said, the chief theoreticians or appliers of these theories are people at, at Middlebury where the they attack Charles. They physically attack Charles Murray, and um, most places. That, I mean, I taught for nineteen years at the University of Iowa, and, and uh, fifteen years at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and there wasn't much of a problem there. Although, of course, <laughs> I was a member of the English department there, and I was the only free market person in the English department. I can assure you. So, the, I, going through some of the parts of your book, I think. Um one of the things I kept I kind of looking at it, knowing you and just seeing, you know, where is you're coming from, it's get this idea of as liberals and as libertarians and making common cause with people who, who are on the left or on the right who will call themselves liberals, this question, what should we prioritize in terms of the fights that we should be having? I mean, because like, sometimes libertarians will say, oh, you know, redistribution is the thing that we should be really fighting against or war or something. Are there things that we should sort of pull back on, like, say, redistribution versus uh, war or civil liberties in terms well, of trying? You know, that is a subtle political practical question which I am singularly ill-equipped to do. I'm not even mean for for even doctrinal purposes. Like, I mean, is, is redistribution something that that on a moral level we should we should stand against? Redistribution is very dangerous. A state that can is powerful enough to redistribute in a way that you might consider good today is powerful enough to redistribute. In a way, you definitely don't approve of tomorrow. Well, if that's the case, then um, and so we should we should stand firm against it. How do we deal with so? I like yes, people aren't as poor, bad off as we get led to believe, and wages are rising, all that. But there certainly are, and especially in a dynamic market economy, there certainly are lots of people who are in that fourteen percent that lose 14% their jobs and can't find another one. But they can, uh, um, or. 
or fall through the cracks in some way. Yeah, but but people fall through the cracks in a progressive society. If you want to keep people from falling through the cracks, let's everyone have a job right now and stay with it forever and not ever change anything. Well, I guess then the question though is should we um, as as liberals, libertarians making like rhetorical – we're making arguments. Um, should we be saying, OK, so there are always going to be some people who fall through the cracks and that's just the way it is? Or do we have positive obligations have towards positive these people? Obligations. I am a Christian liberal. I believe that as a Christian, I have a positive obligation towards the poor and unfortunate that I do not pass by on the other side. I act as the good Samaritan did. And I really do. I had two homeless people living in my apartment for four and a half years. I tithe at my church. So I, you know, I don't want to sound like a saint, but that's what I do because I'm a Christian. So what I'm, what I'm putting forward is liberalism 2.0, not the kind of liberalism 1.0, which is based on the idea, uh, it, as Hillel of Babylon put it in the late first century BCE, do not do unto others what you would not want done to yourself. I want to pair that with the other Jewish sage, Jesus uh, of Nazareth, who put it in the early first century CE, do unto others as you'd want to do unto you. So, both. Both courage, autonomy, and love connection. Both the male and the female together. That's how any man or a woman ought to be. And in practical terms, in terms of politics that liberals ought to espouse, what we should be doing is talking constantly about the poor. In my in my book, I go to went to. It wasn't unnatural for me, but I talked a lot, a lot, a lot about the poor, how our policies actually help the poor, as against the kind of faux policies that our friends on the left or the right say help the poor but don't. Uh, uh, so our so. Every speech we give should be, I am in favor of such and such a liberal policy, end of the war on drugs, uh, end of the minimum wage, institution of a, of a, a minimum income, not wage, uh, deregulation, abolition of the Food and Drug Administration, whatever you want to talk about, because it will help the poor. Because I, what we're often accused of is for some reason, it's psychologically very implausible, we want rich people to be richer. Well, that's not my purpose in life. That Charles Koch makes another billion. Uh, actually, I, I, I know Charles. He's a nice guy and he'll give it to, 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 for a good purpose. But that's not why I'm in the business. I'm in the business to help help the wretched of the earth. And the one welfare program that has been incredibly successful is the Great Enrichment. Three 
thousand percent percent improvement in income per head in real terms. And how do you get a redistribution that accomplishes three thousand percent? Huh? What you can? How, how does that work? <laughs> so there's another kind of objection to liberalism that we see. It was embodied in, say, the the National Conservatism Conference earlier this summer. Um, that is not about necessarily so much like the poor slipping through or about hierarchies, but it's about that we as human beings do best when embedded in communities, communities and with yeah. social institutions and yeah. that, that the that the individualism that comes yeah. to liberalism. Yeah, that's right. Um, and we did we recorded this morning with Professor Clay Rutledge about this, and I think this episode will be out. Week after our yeah. listeners should that should be the prior episode <laughs> yes. for our listeners listening to this one. Um, that 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 aspect of individualism that comes with liberalism is corrosive of those things. And so, even if it makes us wealthy, if it leads to this cultural malaise and the rise of opiate addiction and suicide and all of that, that might not be worth it. And yeah. cell phone addiction. And th I mean, other things that yeah, yeah, for yeah. some conservatives, everything's on the table. Yeah, yeah. All things are. Are addictive. Any new thing is addictive. Yeah, they, I wrote a uh, review last year of uh, of Denine's book, Why Liberalism Fails, failed, and oh, it's Patrick Denine. Patrick Denine, and he comes at it from a conservative uh, Catholic point of view, but it's the same point on the right and the left, both of them, Catholic traditionalists. Uh, left-wing communitarians both talk a lot about these uh, communal um, the erosion of – now look, the, the trouble with this is that it's historical nonsense, <laughs> among other things. Alexi de Tocqueville was stunned in 1832 by the immense undergrowth, if that's quite the word, the growth of intermediate institutions in the United States. As a French aristocrat, he was accustomed to the aristocracy or the state being in charge and the, uh, and, and the, uh, the third estate or the, the commoners to be subordinate and, and to be coerced by these upper Things. And this didn't happen in the United States. Now, of course, this was a slave society, so let's get that straight. Um, but but it, it it's it's just not true. I don't think it's true. I think modern electronic devices, to, to take up the point about cell phone addiction or whatever, are community building instruments. Certainly can be. Of course, people can go off and bowl alone, as someone famously said. But they don't. In fact, I just heard that bowling leagues are reviving in the United States. So I, I, I think that these are grossly overblown. If you blame everything on freedom, we'll have no freedom. That's an, an, probably true. Uh, but the other, there's another element too. We can talk about poverty, community destruction. The other big one that is. I mean, especially since I would say about 2010, 
it's become probably the hot one of the hottest political things is inequality. Yeah, I know. And it's it's it's, it's animating the left yeah, politi- politicians. Elizabeth Warren is, and we got Piketty, and we have yeah, Sayers yeah, yeah, and yeah. Zuckman and stuff. So, so do we? Care, when do we care about that, or how do we care about that, or well, what's I, wrong with the way that they're in portraying it? In my book, it? I have a long section on inequality. I think you're right. It's the it's the big boogeyman of the left. Um, especially in the United States, in Britain too. I've been in d- debates with uh, people in Britain about this. Um, and it's got all kinds of problems. Uh, I, but I have about 100 pages, not 100, more like uh, 80 pages in the book. Some are empirical and some are conceptual. Some are empirical problems and other are uh, conceptual problems. The The basic problem with the worry about inequality is that if inequality is caused by one group of people stealing from another, then I join my friends in the left in opposing inequality. But if the inequality is caused by some person having a very good voice and being Frank Sinatra or another person being uh, Jackie Robinson... Uh, and actually, J- Jackie was n- not around in the free agency era, but I don't know, um, uh, Kurt Flood to take Kurt the, Flood, King to, King take, Jr. to take yeah. the key example. Um, if they make money, it's because people volunteered to pay the money. And I have no objection to that at all. That some rock musician makes a lot of money for, uh, uh, do, um, doing crazy things. Doing crazy <laughs> things on stage. It all sounds like an airplane crash to me. But <laughs> I'm very old-fashioned. That's fine. And and in particular, to go after people who innovate. Let's take Jeff Bezos and Amazon. Amazon has definitely improved my life, and I suppose yours as well. I I buy all kinds of things on Amazon with the greatest of ease. What it is is a reinvention of Sears Roebuck or Montgomery Ward or Siegel's. It's a a reinvention of the Chicago-based mail order for the modern world of of the Internet. And it's, it's wonderful just as Sears Roebuck was. And that it's big is not in itself a problem if it got to be big by doing things that people like. And they massively like being able to, you know, I, I bought this blouse that I have on online. I just bought another one like this this morning. So it's – we where the inequality comes from is crucial. If it comes from free exchange and, and innovism, as I call it, improvement, layoff. If it – and in fact, that, you know – it's not as if the kind we can fix is to stop people from stealing, but most of the stealing is um, at the with with government permission. That we should stop. People with TV licenses in the old days. Yeah. That was a political game. Lady Bird Johnson had I don't know thirty TV licenses. That I wouldn't wouldn't feel so happy about. For libertarians who do um, 
should they stop identifying more with the right than the left? Definitely. And, and the, re, the way to do that is to emphasize that our proposals, unlike either the left or the right, help the poor. It's the poor we should care about. It's the Jodes. It's the wretched of the earth. Actually, the Jodes, by the way, did very well. After they got to California, so to speak, this is metaphorical, but it's an actual truth, historical truth, they went to work in war industries in California, which eventually became civilian aircraft industries, and got a little house in in uh, in Sausalito. Uh, and now, and now, thanks to California zoning laws, that house is worth four million dollars, even exactly. though it was built in 1938. Exactly. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I went. I was in a debate in at the, at the National Theatre in London about the issue of housing in London, and the people who came to the debate were mainly of the left. They were they were laborites, and I said, you know, what's causing Housing prices to be so expensive in London is housing regulation, buildings uh, 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 regulation, and they hissed me. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I was amused. <laughs> so for for liberals, this is a this is a one that I've actually always wanted to ask you. Um, it in terms of the recommendations. You have an interesting take on liberalism and libertarianism and a lot of people are very influenced by you. Well, I'm but, glad to hear but, that. But, they they should send me money. <laughs> they could buy your book, which I, which <laughs> well, I commend to them. Yeah. Intermediate yeah. step, but they could just send, <laughs> they me could just send you money. That's they true. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what, who influenced you? What, what, what would be your things that you would point to people like this is what you should read to understand this stuff? Well, We've the, got the obvious ones. The biggest influence was um, Robert Nozick's book, 1974, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, which in a somewhat abstract and philosophical way with, with lots, though, of vivid examples like the Wilt Chamberlain example and all that, shows how you can be a principled advocate for poor people yet not want to push people around. Whereas, um, uh, it, of course, Rawls, John Rawls, who had read a couple of years before, he's the big hero on the left – but even Rawls was something of a of a of a liberal, although definitely it was. But it's yeah. the first principle of justice: you had That's to respect right. rights. So. Exactly. So um, that was a big that was a big influence. I must say the the the, the Cato Institute has been an influence on me for a long time, um, and, and indeed that whole business of finding people who agreed with me or who disagreed with me in interesting ways uh, um, pushed my um, thought along. And then so when, when the fledgling academic Deirdre was getting getting started in the PhD world, uh, was, was that what pushed you into that area? Well, I was or? still a socialist then. We're talking about 1964 I, when I applied for graduate school. When I graduated from college, I didn't even apply to the University of Chicago. Ten years later, I was the director of its very large graduate program. So that's how far I went in ten years. 
Um, you know, I was certainly a socialist before I started studying economics in college, and then I became a Keynesian because that was what it was on offer in 1960 when I started college. And then I was a kind of social engineer. I'd like, you know, I feel very unhappy coming to Washington, as I do often, because all these nice, young, educated people walking around, they're all trying to take my money. (laughs) (laughs) And 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 if they were spending it on helping the poor, I'd be all for it, but they're not. They're spending it on screwing the poor and helping. uh, It's a double bad. That's what I keep saying. Whenever I pay my taxes, I'm like, can I I just burn it? I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, vi- I'll take a video of me burning my yeah, tag. Yeah, and, yeah. and just so you, you don't, I, I know I don't get it, yeah. but why do you have to go you yeah, know, exactly. use it to bomb exactly. some country? And- in fact, in fact that, that's, that was the other big influence on me. When I was an undergraduate and a graduate student, Vietnam was going on. And as the child of World War II generation uh, parents, of course, uh, the good war and all that, and I could see that this was a bad war and that it was being incompetently done. And the one job, as I said before, that nation states are supposed to do is to protect us from the Canadians. I, I, as I night and day, I worry about it. And, and the, the American government was spectacularly not doing this. And I began to see the intrinsic incompetence of government. I mean, I I didn't instantly twig to this, as the British say, but I I gradually became clearer and clearer that, that, again, this general will stuff is rubbish, usually. Usually. I I think it's it's interesting it said usually. Well, because there's, as I said, for a war of survival. Sure. Okay, I see. Okay. If there's a hurricane, all... All hands to the if, if you know you help take the case if you're on a sailing ship and yeah individualism doesn't horn, matter so much yeah, in that situation. Then you, that's why in the in the navy and even in the merchant marine the the captain's orders was law because if you're going around the horn in a force eight gale you bloody well have to obey the, and if you don't you should be shot. The general will works for that, but boy, in most cases, it doesn't. So you've just published another book defending liberalism. I, uh, I, I defend them. I, I, I write them every day. I send them out. <laughs> and as Trevor started our conversation with the hand-wringing about the state of liberalism, like right now, a lot of stuff looks pretty grim. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that – I guess – how optimistic are you? Do you think that, that like these this this engine of tremendous progress that we've seen is strong enough to fight off the yeah. stuff we're seeing now? Yeah, I think it is because because the demonstration effect is enormous. That economic liberalism was tried in China and worked spectacularly well, and then got tried in India and is working spectacularly well. We'll just eventually convince people. Gee, maybe letting people set up uh, hairdressing salons and going to move to another part of India to work is a good idea. Um, so, I, so I think that's 
one point. I don't think the current crisis about populism, left-wing or right-wing, is is permanent. I, I don't think it's – as I said, if Donald Trump isn't reelected, I think we're, we're going to move. It's going to fade. It's going to, the air is going to come out of it. But there's – but people have been attacking liberalism for a long time. The conservatives have been attacking it for two centuries. The left has been attacking, attacking it for a century and a half, basically since 1848. And that's the real danger because that's where, that's where the nightmares of the 20th century came from, is illiberal ideas hatched in the 19th century. Uh, I found of saying that the clerics, as I call it, the writers and, and uh, blog hosts and so on, um, uh, in, 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 had th- three ideas in the last three centuries. One was liberalism in the 18th century and beyond, which was a spectacularly good idea. The other two were nationalism and socialism which were terrible ideas. And if you think you like nationalism and socialism, perhaps you'll like national socialism. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, you can find our Free Thoughts discussion group on Facebook or on Reddit at r slash freethoughtspodcast. You can follow us on Twitter at freethoughtspod. As always, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.